0: Awesome. All right. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 3? So if you've been coming regularly, you know that we are currently in our study through Revelation in chapter 3, studying the seventh and final letter that Jesus dictated to the seven churches of Asia Minor, the letter to the church of Laodicea. Uh, Laodicea was a real church, but spiritually... It represents the liberal church of the last days, a church that basically denied Jesus Christ. This church back then was an unsaved church that Jesus wasn't even a part of. As we see in verse 20, he was outside the walls of their church knocking to be let into fellowship with them. In other words, they have real communion uh, by virtue of the fact that they were saved and one with him now. Uh, As of this point, they were not. He was knocking to get in. The same is true with liberal churches today. They are churches that call themselves Christian churches, but for the most part are unsaved also. Churches that Jesus wants to be in a saving relationship with, but at the moment, for most of them, uh, he's still knocking to get in. We'll talk about that more in a moment. So, again, by way of review, verse 14 Jesus begins the letter, and to the angel or the senior pastor of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, as we said last time, at this point, in all but two of the letters, the letters of Sardis and now Laodicea, uh, in, all the, in all but two of the letters to these seven churches, there is usually a commendation of some kind at this point. Uh, Just to start the letter off, Jesus moves right into a commendation, uh, you know, recognizing what is good in their church, uh, each of the churches that these letters were addressed to, you know, some of the good things going on. uh, But here, there is no commendation at all, just a big blank spot. Instead, the Lord moves right into the condemnation, the condemnation. And uh, we read, In verses 15 and 16, Jesus said, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot, so that because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. As we said last week, Jesus gives this church a rather shocking rebuke when he told them that because of their lukewarm spiritual state, he was going to vomit them out of his mouth. We studied what being lukewarm is all about last time in our study. If you weren't here, go online and listen to it. I think the whole concept of what it means to be lukewarm, especially in relation to this church and as it relates to spiritually the uh, liberal church of the last days, is very important that you understand. So I'll let you do that on your own. Verse 17. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This church was equating their physical prosperity. As I said last time, they were a very wealthy church, wealthy town. Uh, Laodicea was extremely uh, prosperous, one of the most uh, prosperous cities in Of the world at that time. Um, So this was a church that was equating their physical prosperity with their spiritual health and well-being. Israel did this in the Old Testament, and many Christians, many churches do it today. In other words, if the church is prospering financially, well, many churches believe it's proof that they are right with God, that the Holy Spirit is with them, Because, you know, God doesn't bless financially bad churches, so they think, they reason, Uh, which means because we are a wealthy church, that means God is smiling upon us. We are uh, in favor with God, is the idea. And little churches like this one, uh, something's wrong, because if God was really here, if he was really blessing, you'd have a building and you'd be prospering and so this is, uh, you know, a kind of a black mark on your fellowship, they say, because you're so small and so on. But we're we're very, you know, we are very rich and in need of nothing, they said. And Jesus said, Well, no, no. As I see you, you're was as poor, blind, wretched, miserable, naked, and so on, right? Um, he's condemning them. Their wealth and their pride had blinded them to their true spiritual condition. Wealth can often give a false sense of God's hand being upon a church or upon an individual's life, as we just mentioned. Uh, At this point, Jesus now gives the correction, uh, the cure, for their spiritual sickness. He said in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Of course, Jesus is coming to this church as the great physician. It's a sick church. They don't know they're sick. They think they're very healthy. They think they're doing great. Uh, Again, their estimation is we are blessed, wealthy. We don't need anything. Uh, Jesus says, no, actually, you're very sick spiritually. And he comes to them. They're completely oblivious to how sick they are. And um, Jesus comes to this church with an accurate, of course, you wouldn't expect anything less from the great physician, Jesus Christ. Uh, He comes to this church with an accurate diagnosis of their spiritual condition. And so now in verses 18 and 19, he begins to give them the cure, the cure. He said, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Jesus said, look, my counsel, my prescription is this, that you buy from me. Now, whoa, wait a minute. That we buy from you? Uh, we, we have to buy stuff from God? Uh, I thought God gives things freely. He does. Okay, he does. I'm going to tell you what I believe Jesus is saying in a moment. But everything that God wants to give us is free. That's what grace means. It means, it means getting a gift something you did not deserve, all right? And uh, that that's the idea here. Everything God wants to give us, especially the most valuable thing He is offering us, which is the gift of eternal life, it all comes simply by us reaching out by faith and receiving it, all right? So then why did Jesus phrase it this way? You know, you think you're rich, you're not, but look, if you really want to be rich, I counsel you to buy from me, Well, look, the Lord is not speaking literally. Um, He's being a little sarcastic. A little bit. I'm not saying he's being, you know, a little bit though, okay? Why is he doing that? Because he is speaking to a group of people that think money can buy them anything. Wealthy people tend to kind of think this way. And uh, sometimes wealthy churches, right? That uh, they had enough money that they could buy anything. And as such, this was a church uh, not alone, I'm sure, but this was a church, because of their great wealth, had put their money on the throne, really, and uh, kind of took the place of God in their lives. Look, if you have enough money to get anything you need, whatever you want, why pray? You can you can get it. You can pay for it, right? It does breed a, a kind of a spirit of independence, and that's exactly what you don't want in your walk with God. All the way through the Bible, God was trying to break Israel, and now the church of relying on their own strength, on their own resources, on their own wisdom, you know, uh, and, and, and to stop getting to trust in the arm of man. If when Israel was uh, being attacked, they went down to Egypt and tried to hire the Egyptians as mercenaries. And God says, why did you do that? Why did you do that? I mean, Egypt is just, they're just men. Their horses are not spirit, they're just flesh why don't you come to me? Why do you go down to Egypt for help and so on? Egypt being a type of the world you could fill in the blank, right? As Christians, we don't always go to the Lord. And if we do, it's only for a short time. And when God doesn't rush to our aid, then we take matters into our own hands oftentimes and create an Ishmael uh, somehow. Okay, We don't want to do that. And the Lord is trying to to reason with them in a sense. You know, it, you know come to me. What, what are you trusting in your wealth for? It reminds uh, us of what God said through the prophet Isaiah. Remember in Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 3, here's what God said Ho, every, yo, not yo, ho, okay. Uh, sounds like rocky. Well, he is the rock, but okay. Uh, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you, uh, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. He's using that same kind of language, isn't he? He's not really talking to them about buying something, but here it is: these people were obsessed with material things. They were obsessed with materialism, and they were buying everything to satisfy that need or that longing inside. God says, "You know what? For all you're buying, buy from me. Why don't you?" But not really, because what I'm offering is free. But if we're going to use that language, okay, okay, that's where your mindset is. Come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Look, all we need in life are the essentials to live, right? But as Americans, we could really relate to this. Because this was spoken at a time when Israel was very prosperous. And again, money had kind of turned their hearts from God. And they were looking to their money to allow them to buy things that would bring happiness and fulfillment. It wasn't working. It can't work. You can't stuff a God-shaped void, which is what God made all of us with. A God, sh- You can't stuff a God-shaped void with the junk of this world. Trying to fill the void. Only God can do that. Only Jesus Christ can come in and fill the void. But a lot of people don't understand that, and sometimes they're Christians. Israel fell into this trap. God said, listen. Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Listen, incline your ear, here it is, and come to me, come to me. All this money you're spending for things that you don't really need. All you need is bread and water, basically. But you're so empty inside and you're trying to stuff that void with material things and you're wondering why you're never satisfied. No matter how much you acquire, America, listen. No matter how much you acquire, no matter how many material possessions or or cars and boats and trailers and whatever it is, you're wondering why it's not satisfying you because, again, you're trying to sh- fill a God-shaped void with all the stuff of the world. It never works. So Jesus said, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. And again, he's not talking about literal gold. I believe the Lord Jesus had in mind the very thing Peter had talked about. In 1 Peter 1 verse 7, you can turn there, 1 Peter 1 7. I this a few months ago when we were in 1 Peter. I mean, the way Peter, what he says here is very much uh, what Jesus is talking about. I think Jesus had the same thing in mind that uh, Peter did. But when Jesus said to the Laodiceans, look, here's the prescription. Here's the cure. You need to buy gold from me. Well, what does that mean? Not literal gold, as Peter talked about it in 1 Peter 1.7. He said that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes. Gold perishes, but not the gold that God wants us all to have, because that gold, what is it? Faith in God. There's nothing more precious than having faith in God. Why? Because faith connects us to God. It allows the power and resources of God to flow from Him into our lives. When you're connected to God, you have access to unlimited resources. I mean, all the gold in the world can't even begin to bring you what God can give you for free. But you got to be connected to Him, right? How do I get connected with God? You receive Christ as your Savior. That's, you know, positional connecting. Now you're connected to Him like the branches and the vine, right? But every day we have to stay in fellowship. We have to continue that communion with the Lord. As we do, it allows God's power and strength to flow into our life, His blessings for whatever we need, right? And so, you know, Peter says, look, you you want to be rich? Cultivate faith, because that's more precious than gold that perishes, uh, though it be tested by fire. Uh, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter has something in mind that we've talked about in the past, right? He's talking about our faith being purified. The tested means uh, in in the assayer's fire, all right? What, What does that mean? The goldsmith would take a lump of raw gold ore, put it in the pot, begin to heat it. And as the pot got hotter and hotter, The gold began to melt. Well, as it melted, it began to release impurities, uh, which was in you know gold ore, silver ore. These things have impurities, right? And so, as he keeps heating the gold ore, the impurities flow to the top. He would then scrape off the impurities periodically, and keep heating and keep scraping off the dross, the impurities, until he could look into that pot of gold and see his reflection. Then he knew it was ready to be fashioned into whatever he wanted to use it for, beautiful jewelry uh, or whatever, okay? Peter said our faith is like that, and it's a lot more precious than gold. But God does the same thing in our lives. He gives us faith to believe, the ability to believe, right? And now he wants to refine that. When we first get saved, we have saving faith, but we are not mature at all. I mean, there's a lot of carnality still mixed in now, because we're brand new in the Lord. So the Lord allows us to go through what Peter calls fiery trials. And when that happens, it has a way of releasing what is in my heart that I might not even be aware of, it bringing it to the surface, right? Uh, you know, I think I've gotten things like anger under control. And then God brings a situation where somebody cuts me off in the expressway, and I blow up. That hasn't happened in a long time, but I want to, just using a hypothetical. Okay? I used to. God's given me a lot of grace. So there's other areas though that need to be worked on. Um but, but God brings these things. You think you got this nailed down? And, and and God brings a fiery trial and all of a sudden things come to the surface. Oh my goodness. I thought I had that under control. I thought I had victory over that. And the Lord says, Well, no, I see there's there's still problems here. So bring it. I wanted to show it to you because we can't confess our sins if we don't know they're there. So that's where the Lord allows us to, these things to surface so we can see them, confess them to Him, repent, and then move forward in His strength uh, that He will give to us to be more like gold with our faith and so on, right? But in Psalm 19, we're talking about, first of all, faith, and then in Psalm 19, David talks about the Word of God. One of my favorite Psalms. Uh, Picking it up in verse 7, where David said, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever." The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, we've talked about this. All those uh, words uh, relate to God's word. It's all about God's word. His, uh, His law, His testimony, His statutes, His commandments, it all is talking about God's word. And here's what Peter uh, goes on to say in verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold. What? All God's commandments, all God's precepts. Because they 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 direct us in the right paths. Very important point, and uh, there's nothing more precious than God's word for giving us a road map in in where to go, how to live, so that we stay on the straight and narrow, and the devil can't get at us. He he still does, but not like if you walked off the path. Okay, if you would set your eyes right. Ahead of you, Paul said in Ephesians, right? And don't look to the right or to the left, but, but stay looking ahead of you. At Jesus is the idea, you know, but walking that narrow path of obedience to his word, uh, it'll be go well with us. It'll be, it'll be good for us, right? But so more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, Yes, don't go there. Don't step off the path in that direction. And in keeping them, there is great reward. Look, what Jesus is doing, guys, he is calling to the Laodiceans to abandon the riches of the world. You know, you don't have to be poor to be a godly Christian. Uh, but if your money is on the throne of your heart, it needs to go. Like the rich young ruler, uh, good master, how can I you know, have eternal life? Uh, keep the commandments. Well, I, I do all those already. Then give your money to the poor. Come follow me. You'll have riches beyond your wildest dreams. But he went away sorrowful because he had much wealth and didn't want to let go of it. Look, that is not a universal command to every person who wants to follow Jesus. You have to be poor. Give everything away to the. Some people teach that. I don't believe that. There were wealthy people in the Bible that loved the Lord, starting with you know uh, Abraham. And you had others that were very wealthy, uh, you know, Joseph of Arimathea, David, Solomon. I mean, there have been many uh, men and women who are very wealthy and and yet love the Lord dearly, use that money for his glory. It's not that you have to be poor to follow Jesus, but he's got to be on the throne of your heart. He's got to be king. He's got to be supreme. Uh, in the one who guides your life, and if anything else is on the throne, and it may not be money in your case. It might be fame, a desire to be uh, famous in some way, to become a uh, some kind of a great musician or an actor or something, and, and it's hindering you from giving Jesus complete control. He would say, well, that has to go. In your life, this has got to go. In the rich young ruler's life, it was his wealth, his money that had to go because it was hindering jesus from being able to sit down and take full control of this man's life but um, the call to the lay of the scenes was to abandon their riches because they too were putting it on the throne of their life and uh, get rid of it and embrace the true riches of god which are the word of god and faith as we just mentioned jesus is saying look Give the word of God its proper place in your church, which would imply also its proper place in your life, and then believe and obey what it says. It's That's true gold. That's true wealth. The reason I feel the Lord was hitting this so hard is because a lot of liberal churches are very wealthy. Um, their message resonates with a lot of people that want to have a form of godliness, but kind of deny the power, right? There's a lot of folks that are not born again um, who do want God in their lives in some capacity, and so they want a church that will be consistent with giving them some kind of spiritual spirituality, while at the same time letting them pursue whatever they want to pursue, that maybe we as evangelicals would say, you can't do that. You can't live together. You can't practice homosexuality. You can't uh, do this or that or you know whatever it might be because god's word says this and that they don't give the word of god they give it lip service oftentimes liberal churches will quote scripture but they don't really believe the scriptures are living and powerful in fact if you talk to liberal pastors they excuse away everything a lot of them don't even believe in the virgin birth they don't believe in the the tony atoning work of jesus christ on the cross uh, they don't believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. It's a collection of myths and legends and stories that we can maybe learn a few, few things from. But don't, don't ever use it to guide your life by. That's ridiculous. This is the mindset. And so Jesus Christ is saying, Look, you think you're wealthy because you have physical wealth. But you, are, you have something in your midst that is more valuable than anything. Uh, money could buy- it's the word of god and yet you don't cherish it you don't you don't look at it as the treasure that it is you give it lip service you toss it off to the side and you do your own thing thinking that you're so wealthy because god's blessing and you don't have to do make any changes and that, that that's the mentality okay that's what jesus is getting at the word of god faith that's true wealth that's true riches verse 18 again he goes on he said first i counsel you to buy from me, gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich. And here's the second thing: and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Now, as we said when we first started this letter, the letter to Laodicea, Laodicea was a textile town, famous for the production of a black of black outer garments made from the glossy black wool of a special breed of sheep that grazed around the city of Laodicea. It was kind of unique to that area, this particular breed of sheep. They had this beautiful black, long, glossy wool coat. And uh, I guess at that time, um, it was very sought after. Uh, you know, it was a big thing back then. Uh, that, uh, and, and people wanted this, these garments made from this black, glossy wool. And uh, everyone in Laodicea basically wore uh, these, these black garments because, of course, it was, you know, unique to their city. So they all wore it as a kind of a fashion statement, right? Uh, but Jesus is saying, look, you know, he's picking up on that. Here they are all walking around with all this black outer garment, right? And Jesus is saying, look, your black garments are indicative of where you are spiritually. It's ironic, right? But your black garments uh, that you love so much, you wear all the time, really, uh, these garments are indicative of where you are spiritually. What you need are white garments. Not literally, but white garments spiritually. In other words, what they really needed were the white robes of Christ's righteousness. Jesus said you need white garments which... I alone can clothe you with. When does that happen? When a person receives Christ. Okay. They are clothed in his righteousness. Um, but but uh, it, it gets into, again, something that, you know, is, is kind of um, classic with liberal churches. Liberal churches pride themselves on their good works. Okay. And they do a lot of good things for Uh, the community when they go out into the mission field uh, they do a lot of good things to help people but in the way of social programs when evangelicals go out into the mission field uh, we try to help people physically but we're there to give them the gospel which can save them uh, eternally and, and and connect them to God who has all resources right anything they need God can provide liberal churches they pride themselves on their social works okay Uh, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, uh, helping the poor, whatever way they can. You say, is that wrong? It's not wrong if it's done out of a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're really saved and the Spirit of God is in you, well, God's going to work in your heart to help and bless people made in His image. He loves them. He loves the lost. But if you're doing those things apart from a genuine saving relationship with Jesus Christ, simply because you think the more good things you do to help people, the more you are earning a place in heaven. Well, that's not good. That's not good. In fact, all the good works that this liberal church had wrapped themselves in as a way of, you know, as a way of clothing themselves uh, beautifully in the eyes of God, they believed. Look at all the good things we do to help people. And they were wearing those things as an outer garment, a badge of honor. It's interesting that Jesus said, in my eyes, you're naked. You're naked. In fact, these works of self-righteousness went even beyond that. It was worse than that. Yes, as Jesus saw them, all the good social works they did in the energy of their flesh That they tried to clothe themselves with. He didn't even acknowledge them. They were naked. But it was more than that. Because in Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6. God talks about this very thing. And he said that. um, Isaiah is actually speaking. But he said you know. We are all like an unclean thing. In all our righteousnesses. Okay? Righteousness says, what does that mean? All our good works of the flesh are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. We've talked about that, very graphic imagery. Filthy rags in the Hebrew is, a word, is words that literally mean used menstrual cloths. That's how God sees all the works we do in the flesh that we think are earning us God's favor, a place in God's kingdom, Look at us, God must love us more than anyone else. Our food pantry is the biggest in town. We're always helping the poor. But see, it's all being done out of the flesh um, because there's no relationship with Jesus. And so as God sees it, it's worse than being naked. You're clothing yourselves in these, sorry, used menstrual cloths, which meant you're totally defiled in the eyes of God. Totally defiled. How do you really get pure? How do you really clothe yourself with something God honors? Well, Revelation 7.14, talking about those people during the tribulation period that were martyred by the Antichrist, and here they are now in heaven. and um, John asks one of the elders who these are. He says, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's the only way we can be cleansed in the eyes of God. Not by our good works, no matter how noble they are, but simply by virtue of receiving Christ and His blood washes over us and cleanses us, right? Zechariah 3, verses 3 and 4. I'll just read it to you. Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, take away, God speaking now, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him, Joshua, God said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And the idea is that only God can cleanse. Remember what the psalmist said, I believe it was David, uh, create in me a clean heart, O God. There is nothing we can do to cleanse our own hearts. They are defiled, they're wicked. Uh, Jeremiah seventeen nine. the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I know what's in the heart and I alone can cleanse the heart. That's what salvation is all about, guys. All right, so the first thing Jesus said was, Look, you think you're rich, you're poor. Uh, I counsel you to buy for me gold, uh, refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. I don't know if I mentioned it, but the people of of Laodicea were very proud that, that they had been used to clothe so many people with these beautiful designer black garments. But ironically, Jesus said, you yourselves are naked. They didn't see that, all right? They didn't see that. And so, look, take away the filthy garments from you. And to him he said, see, I have, oh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Revelation uh, 3.18. uh, Buy for me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And the third one is, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. Again, as we said to begin <clears throat> this letter, there was a medical school in Laodicea that was famous for an eye salve it had developed. This eye salve, I guess, was pretty good because uh, they shipped it all over the Greco- Greco-Roman world. A lot of people knew about this eye salve. I guess it seemed to work pretty well for whatever malady uh, they had, much of what they had uh, in the way of eye disease, or it soothed, probably. It helped, and so it was very sought after. And again, as I said, exported all over the Greco-Roman world. And, and again, the late the were very proud, very proud of their eye salve, that it helped so many people to see. Yet again, ironically, they never realized that they themselves were spiritually blind. I forgot... I think it was the Lord Jesus who said it: "There is no one so blind as the, as he or she that refuses to see." And a lot of times they refuse to see because they're convinced they see already. Okay, you're trying to get them to see God's word in a different way than maybe they've grown up interpreting it. Right? So a lot of folks, and myself included, when I was in the Roman Catholic Church, I didn't read the Bible. Hardly at all, but when you went to church, they had a little 10-minute homily that the priest would give. And of course, what did I know? Here's the priest explaining the Bible to us in this little passage. Of course, I believed him. Why shouldn't I believe him, right? And it wasn't until I received Christ as my Savior and began to read the Bible that the Spirit of God now in me began to enlighten me, open my eyes. And I began to see for the first time what the Bible was really talking about. And I couldn't find anywhere in the Bible where good works saved me, as I was taught in the Roman Catholic Church. It said nothing about lighting candles, praying rosaries, keeping feasts in the holy days. It was all about Jesus, receiving Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. Because when I did that, I got a gift, the most precious gift in the universe, the gift of eternal life. You know, and, and, you know, for by grace you're saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not the result of good works, lest any should boast, right? I didn't know that um, until I started reading the Bible for myself and the Spirit of God began to open my eyes. If you would have challenged me with this before I got saved, I would have wrote you off. Hey, I see. What are you talking about? I go to church. My priest tells me what these uh, verses mean and so on. It's It's just... It's something um, when you're blind, but you think you see. Thank God he opened our eyes, is my point. And Jesus Jesus could have forced spiritual vision on these people. But he doesn't force anything on us. He invites, he challenges, you know, um, because he loves us and he's given us a free will. He said, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. He, he tries to reason with us to bow to His will because He loves us and His will is the best. But if we obstinately hold on to our will in rebellion, well, there's consequences. Consequences that God wants to keep us from because His ways are the right paths and so on. But guys, again... The church at Laodicea is typical of the modern liberal church, which is blind to its true spiritual condition. Again, they gave themselves an A+, plus, Jesus, an F-. minus. They thought they were probably the best church in the whole area. Jesus, said, I'm not even in your church. I'm knocking on the outside, begging you to open the door and let me in. Amazing. It reminds us of Another group of spiritual leaders the Bible talks about, of course, in the New Testament, the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus said to them, Matthew 15, 14, he called them blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a ditch. In Matthew 23, he excoriated these guys. He said, woe to you, blind guides. You're the people others are following because you believe that you're leading them to me, Jesus said to God, but you're blind. You're nothing but blind guides and so on. And he goes on to talk about how that, again, they thought they were so right with God because they were wealthy. Uh, somebody swears by the temple, who cares about that? But they swear by the gold on the temple altar. Oh, that's something. The priorities were so messed up, you know. It was all about earthly riches and laying up treasures on the earth. Jesus that is so contrary to what I want for my people. I want you to lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. They can't be destroyed. They can't be stolen and so on. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4? Talking about the Laodiceans now who were blind. Paul said, of people who are unsaved, he said, whose minds the God of this age, Satan, has blinded. Who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Look, I know unbelievers can be difficult to deal with at times. It's a lot of pride there. And they think you're just a religious nut, you know, that you would buy into something so foolish as Christianity. Well, Paul said, to begin First Corinthians, he said, anyone who thinks the preaching of the cross is foolish, just guess what? It proves they're on their way to hell. But they think they're right on. They think that they, you know, can see. And Paul says, look, be patient with them. Don't argue and so on, um, you know, in humility correct them if you're trying to witness to them because you know perhaps god will grant them repentance that they might escape the snare of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will they're not our enemies they have been taken captive by the devil he's blinded their eyes their minds so that the gospel can't really shine so what do we do we pray for them we pray for them that god would open their eyes that they may see but guys It is easy for the devil to blind religious people to their true spiritual condition, especially when they have wealth and use it on helping the poor. Again, we're good people. Well, why are you good? We help the poor and we wear our masks every day. We are good people. I wear my mask in the shower. Nobody's better than me. I take that stuff seriously. I am such a virtuous person that I will wear that mask everywhere to bed uh, everywhere I go, because that's that's how you love people. You you don't put them in harm's way. But see, that's the mindset of so many, right? If I do all these good things, and and so on, and 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 that's why wealthy people tend to think they are, if they believe in God. We're, I'm so right with God. I give all kind. Do you ever notice how many very wealthy people all have foundations? They all have foundations. Bill Gates said, my goal is to give all my money away before I die. I don't know how his kids feel about that, but okay. I think a lot of it is, is guilt, that they have acquired all this, and maybe part of them, because liberals, they want money, but they often feel guilty when they have it. So they're always trying to give it away, right, to, to, to just uh, soothe their guilt, guilty conscience. Not all of them, not all of them, but, but a lot of them. And um, but because of it, and they they have money. They they just think that they're they're right with God. They're a, they're a shoo-in to get to heaven. Well, Jesus talked about these kind of folks. You have to turn here. Matthew 19, right? He said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the Jews believed that if a rich that if a person gave money to poor people. That would be buying a little piece of heaven. You, if you gave enough money away to help people, you could buy your way into heaven. That was Jewish theology. And so the wealthy people who are always giving alms, gifts of money to the poor, they, they, they were a shoo-in. Everybody pretty much thought they were a shoo-in, but Jesus said, no. You know what? It's, it's easier for a literal camel to go through the eye of a literal needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Why? Because rich people think they can buy their way to heaven, and heaven's a free gift. And if you think you can buy it, if you think you can earn it by giving money, the, you won't get it. The Bible's very clear about that. If Jesus if you don't come to God poor in spirit, the Greek is abject poverty, total destitution, if you don't come to God like a person who has nothing to offer, who can't do anything to earn anything from God, if if you don't come broken, Lord, I am a sinner, I I have no strength, I have no resources, I deserve nothing, but I'm asking you for the gift of eternal life because I believe in your son. God says it's yours. You try to buy it like wealthy people tend to buy favor with God, you won't get anything. That's just the way it works, right? Right? So back in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus said, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Look, guys, the Lord still loved this church back then, and He still loves the liberal churches today. But His love won't save them. There's a lot of people who think that because God is love, he would never send them to hell. because I'm a good person. I, mean, I was like, you know, I don't know, Saddam Hussein or somebody like that, a, a dictator, a despot, you know, uh, and so on. Well, yeah, I could see that. Maybe God's love wouldn't cover me. But I'm a good person. God is love. You know, I've tried to witness to people in the past, and they shut me down. God is love. Well, I, I know God's love, but I want to tell you what you, I, I just believe God is love. And because God is love, He won't send me to hell. Well, God's love is an awesome thing, right? But God's love can't save you. God's love has never saved anybody. All He can do is provide a way by which you might be For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's God's part. That's God's love in operation. Just because God gave His only begotten Son to die for the Sins of the whole world, does that automatically mean the whole world is saved? Of course not. The next part is, and whoever believes in him should not perish in hell, but have everlasting life, right? So I've got to reach out now and receive God's gift, which he's offering to me through Jesus Christ. When Jesus was approached by the rich young ruler, uh, in Mark's gospel, we've talked about this, um, Jesus looked at him and loved him, it says. But he went away sorrowful, this man, because, again, he had great wealth, was not willing to let it go, and uh, he wanted to add Jesus to his life. Probably as like a insurance policy, you know, uh, you know, fire protection, that kind of thing. But even though Jesus loved him, his love couldn't save this man. He had to repent and receive Christ. See? A lot of people don't understand that. They think because God is love, he just lets everybody into heaven. Unless you're the worst sinner, uh, Satan, and then mass murderers or something. Uh, but everybody else, because he's love, he lets in. That's not true. That is not true. Again, verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, and be zealous, therefore be zealous and repent. The word zealous is a Greek word that means to be hot. To be hot. Guys, listen. This is Jesus' last word to his church. It's his final message to his last day's church. What does he say? Be zealous. Be zealous. In other words, be hot. Be hot. He is ordering this church to forsake its lukewarmness and get on fire for God. But to do that, they have to Repent. Repent. This is a time in the history of the church. I believe we are in the last days. I believe Jesus is coming very soon for his church. This is not a time for us to be lukewarm. Now, we talked about lukewarmness in this letter relating to unbelievers. That's true. Uh, but, but Christians can not be as hot at any given time as they once were. We can cool in our walk with God. And this is a time when, God help us, we should be the most on fire. Jesus is coming. Prophecies are being fulfilled all around us. And yet the church, for the most part, is asleep in the light. The church needs to repent. We can't get hot until we first repent of carnality, worldliness. J. Vernon McGee said, and I quote: "This church needs repentance more than all the others, and the message of repentance is for the and the message of repentance is for the contemporary church today. But you will not be popular if you preach that message. I can assure you, it is not too late, even for those in this church, a liberal church, not too late for them to turn to Christ." End quote. Again, we've talked about this, guys, but just bear with me. So many Christians use Revelation 3.20 as their gospel presentation. Again, let me read it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Again, there's a lot of people... and probably a good number of pastors who love this verse. Um, it's very positive, okay? Very upbeat in a way, right? And uh, they'll say, "Look, you want to be saved? Just open your heart to Jesus." What does that mean? Just well, just open your heart to Jesus, you know? But if you look at Revelation 3:20, as we have said before, you would see that before the word, behold, there is a space. And before the space, there is a period. And before the period, there is the word, repent. Repent. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Guys, there can be no salvation without repentance. There are many pastors that don't believe repentance is necessary for salvation. They say a person needs only to believe in Jesus to be saved. Well, James 2.19 says even the the demons believe and tremble. They're not going to heaven. They believe. I've even heard some pastors say that telling people they must repent before they can believe and be saved is to teach salvation by works. Whenever someone says that to me, I simply direct them to the words of Jesus himself on the subject. Luke 13, 3, Jesus, said, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Of course, you know the Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which literally means to have a change of mind. A change of mind, though, that leads to a change of direction or action. We've used the illustration of driving down the expressway somewhere, going in one direction, realizing that you're going in the wrong direction. What do you do? You get off the ramp there, go over the highway, come back down the the ramp on the other side. Now you're going in the opposite direction. That really is repentance. Our lives are being lived in such a way, going down the highway of life. And at one point, God reveals to us, uh, we are going in the wrong direction. And, And you might be a very religious person. It's harder for them to get it because again they think they're already going in the right direction. But at one point, the Holy Spirit begins to convict and you realize: look, I'm going in the wrong direction. I'm moving away from God. So you repent, you get off, you come around, go back, you start going in the opposite direction. Now you are heading toward God. Toward God. But this is a very important concept: repentance. And it's important to note that the concept of repentance permeates the scriptures in both the Old and New Testament. Let me just give you a look at some of these from uh, New Testament examples of this. Uh, We've talked about this, so I'm just going to fire these out and you can write down the references. But repent was the first word out of the mouth of John the Baptist when he began his ministry, Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2. Repent was the first word out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus when he began his public ministry, Matthew 4. Verse 17, repent was the first word out of the apostles' mouths when Jesus sent them out two by two to share the gospel. Mark 6, verses 7 and 12, repentance was an integral part of the gospel that the church was commissioned to preach to the world. As Jesus said in Luke 24, verses 46 and 7, repent was the first word of Peter's invitation on the day of Pentecost. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter's message really got to them, repent. Let everyone be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 2.38. Repentance was an essential part of Paul's gospel presentation. He said that in Acts 26, verses 19 to 20. Guys, repentance is a word, I'm sorry to say, and it doesn't surprise me, though, given that we are in the last days. Deception is so rampant, even in the church. But repentance is a word we don't hear too much anymore today in the church. It sounds archaic and out of step with the culture. And don't you know churches are trying, doing backflips, trying to be culturally relevant, whatever that means. So in an effort to be hip, cool, relevant, politically correct, many pastors have removed repentance from their preaching and teaching altogether. When they do that, their favorite evangelistic verses then become John 3.16 and Revelation 3.20. twenty. First, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And again, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, to her, and dine with him, and he with me. Look, John 3.16, in John 3.16, the Lord Jesus declares God's love for the human race. Beautiful, right? Beautiful. But he is not giving us a gospel presentation to use to bring these people to Christ, the unsaved. He expresses a wonderful, beautiful sentiment. God loves the whole world and gave his son to die for the sins of any of all people of this world. And if you will receive Him, you will not go to hell but have everlasting life. That's a beautiful sentiment, right? It doesn't really outline the gospel presentation, though. Beautiful thought, okay? Those who try to use John 3.16 as a gospel presentation neglect to mention either through ignorance or oversight, how Jesus preached repentance at other times as being necessary for salvation. We just cited a few a minute ago. Now, with regard to Revelation 3.20, we just saw that Jesus commanded the Laodicean church to repent as a prerequisite for him coming into their hearts to have fellowship with them. You know, some pastors say, "Uh, we need to preach like Jesus preached, you know? And uh, stress the love of God. And not all this hellfire and judgment stuff. Because you know, Jesus, he just talked about God's love. Jesus kept it positive. Well, you really need to read the Gospels again. Jesus talked more about hell than he talked about heaven or even love. Because he didn't want anyone to go to hell. And guys, there could be no salvation without repentance. That's what Jesus told us. Again, twice in Matthew 13, excuse me, Luke 13, verses 3 and 5, he repeats himself. And if you understand how Jesus taught when he repeated himself, he really wanted to stress this point as important. But he said, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 5, yes, I tell you. But uh, no, you're not going to get to heaven unless you repent. If you don't repent, you will all likewise perish. Well, if that's what Jesus taught us, where is that kind of preaching today? Where is it? Well, it's been replaced by a modern, politically correct gospel. You see, it's not fashionable to preach a gospel that demands people to give up their sins, and worldly pursuits, to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow after Jesus with all their hearts and lives. It's called commitment. It's called making a commitment. The gospel that we hear being preached today, for the most part, there are faithful um, preachers of the gospel. But for the most part in these last days, the gospel that we hear being preached today is, you know, come to Jesus and you'll be rich. Come to Jesus and you'll be Happy, he will take away all the pain of life, and so on and so forth. The gospel preached today, guys, again for the most part, is a crossless gospel that tells people that they all they need to do to get to heaven is just simply believe some facts about Jesus and prayer, prayer, and you're in. But do I have to stop living with my boyfriend or girlfriend? Just get saved. Let God work all that out down the road. Now look, I, I agree that people get saved, and then God begins to work, and He begins to reveal things and begins to convict them. And yes, that's what sanctification is all about. It happens at the moment of salvation. It continues the rest of your life. What I'm against is churches that basically give people the impression they can have Jesus, they can go to heaven, and they don't really have to change anything. Now, and a lot of the sins that we would, stuff we would call sin, they don't see a sin. Gay marriage. Abortion, a lot of the things we believe the Bible is adamantly against, well they don't see it that way. And so they basically give people the impression, look, all you got to do get to have just believe some facts about Jesus, prayer, prayer you're in. What I believe is we need to present the gospel in such a way as that we explain to people, you are giving up control of your life to Jesus. If not, what did Jesus mean by when he said, count, count the cost before you try to follow me? If there wasn't cost involved that we need to make people aware of, now I know salvation is free, but as I've said before, even though salvation is free, it'll cost you everything to follow Jesus. Kind of one of those paradoxes, right? But we, we, you know, yes, come to Jesus, and, and, and He will give you the grace to change. But a person who really has saving faith wants to change. They don't want to have Jesus, add them to their life, and still go on living the same old life. Anybody like that does not have true saving faith, right? And um, that's not the gospel that he, the apostles preached, you know? They followed Jesus when He said count the cost you want to be my disciple you gotta deny yourself take up your cross and follow me that's the life of a disciple some people ask well how do i know if i've truly repented well there will be certain fruits in your life that will bear witness to the genuineness of your repentance turn to matthew 3 quickly Matthew 3, verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Biblical repentance True biblical repentance always involves a change. Sometimes that change takes time. I'm not saying, don't misunderstand me, you got to change first, and then you can receive Jesus and be saved. No, it doesn't work like that. But again, true biblical repentance always involves a change. You're a new creation. If you're really born again, everything's going to start changing. I mean, because you're a new creation now. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And he's working from the inside to make you all that Jesus wants you to be on the outside. Remember what Jesus said? Cleanse the inside of the cup. It will overflow and cleanse the outside also. It starts in the heart with a new birth. Religion tries to get you to clean you up from the outside in. That doesn't work. You become a whitewashed tomb. But when you're born again, the spirit moves in, the spirit of God, and he begins to work from the inside. And there's going to be change. If there's no change... There's no new birth, as far as I can see. I'm not saying you have to be super Christian in three weeks. But I, I've seen people who call themselves Christians after, you know, three and five and ten years. And they're still living with their boyfriend or girlfriend. They're still doing drinking and carrying on, and yet they call themselves Christians. You can call yourself whatever you want. Doesn't mean it's true. All right? I like to call myself six foot five, it hasn't worked out that way. Uh, you know what I'm saying? It's not lip service, is my point, right? It, it's If it's true, repentance, you're going to want to change. in those areas that are really difficult, maybe the drugs or the cigarettes or the alcohol, God understands. You don't try to ask God, well, I'm, watch me do it, Lord. I'm going to have victory. No, you're not. But if you come to me and and you humbly um, acknowledge your weakness, rely on my strength, I will give you the victory. But there's a heart that wants to change, is my point, Right? Again, Revelation 3.20, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Notice Jesus' invitation to this church. If anyone opens the door, he is not speaking to the church in general, is he? It's too far gone. The only hope now is to rescue individuals out of this church before it's too late. And if we're talking about the last day's apostate liberal church, uh, rescue people out of the these churches before the tribulation period or God's judgment begins. Guys, let me just say this. The liberal apostate church of these last days is not going to be saved. Not, not as a whole. Let me say it again. The liberal apostate church of these last days is not going to be saved uh, and taken to heaven at the rapture before the world enters into the tribulation. I'm not saying that individual liberals won't get saved out of these churches, hence Jesus' invitation to individuals. I'm knocking. Open your heart. Let me get you out of this dead sinking ship is what you're in. A church that's dead. It's going under. Don't go under with it. Open your heart to me. Let me come inside and save you. Deliver you from this, right? Well, I said, if any of of you not to the church in general, but to any of you. You hear my voice and open the door of your heart to me. I will come in and save you. I know individual people in these churches can get saved. What I'm saying is when I say that the liberal apostate church is not going to be saved, I don't see them all of a sudden overnight becoming evangelical, is my point. They are liberal apostate churches. I just don't see anywhere from scripture that uh, they're going to all of a sudden become on fire uh, on fire evangelical spiritual churches right look to the liberal to the uh, Church of Philadelphia Jesus promised to remove them from the earth before the tribulation period right he makes no such promise to the Church of Laodicea But rather, Jesus said they will be going into the tribulation period. And I believe, guys, that this liberal apostate church that goes into the tribulation period will then partner with the Antichrist by becoming part of the Antichrist world church, which will be led by the false prophet, as spoken of in Revelation chapter 17. When the rapture happens, all that's left on the earth are unbelievers. Some religious unbelievers, some secular unbelievers, all unbelievers. Now, the Holy Spirit begins to work very hard now after the rapture to begin to reach these folks for Christ. A lot of them get saved after the rapture. But um, this is a liberal church that's going into the tribulation period. And hopefully, as they're in the tribulation period, some of them will bow the knee to Christ and get saved. All right, let's finish up. We see the challenge slash promise. Revelation uh, three twenty one and 2. Jesus said to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Once again, guys, 1 John 5, verse 5. Uh, how, is, how does a person... Uh, overcome the world by having faith in Jesus Christ. So when Jesus talks about those who overcome, he's not talking about them working really hard and, and, and a lot of effort and, and self-reliance. No, he's talking about those who have faith in him. They will overcome the world. They will be victorious. They will be going to heaven because they have faith in Christ. All right, let me conclude with this. Again, one more time, Revelation 3, verse 20, where Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Notice that Jesus didn't say, Behold, I stand at the door and kick it open. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's up to us, it's up to the individual to open the door of their heart to Jesus to let him in. You know, there was an, there was an English artist that lived in the mid-1800s. His name was William Hol- Holman Hunt. And he attempted to capture this scene right here, Revelation 3.20. He attempted to capture this scene on canvas, a very famous painting that now hangs in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. He pictured Jesus standing at the door of a neglected cottage knocking to be let in. One author put it this way he said, and I quote, Thistles have grown up in front, uh, excuse me, thistles have grown up the front wall and grass covers the entry walk. Vines, weeds, and rusty hinges in the painting convey a sense that nobody cares about the cottage or its residents. But standing at the door of this cottage is the kind King Jesus Christ, holding a lantern from which the painting derives its title, The Light of the World. The lantern light casts a warm glow over the front of the rundown home, and with his upraised right hand, Christ is knocking on the door. End quote. When Holman Hunt first painted that picture in 1854, He invited a bunch of his artist friends to come over and critique it. After gazing at the painting intently, one author writes, one of them said to him, Holman, you've made a terrible mistake. (laughs) You left left off a very important part of the door. Holman said, what are you talking about? The handle, Holman, you left the handle off the door. Ah, Mr. Mr. Hunt replied, that was on purpose. You see, this door is a picture of the human heart and the handle of the door is only on the inside for it's up to the one within to respond to the knock of Jesus, end quote. Look, Jesus will not force his way into a heart. He won't barge in where he's not wanted or welcome. He's a perfect gentleman who knocks and says, if you'll respond to me and open the door of your heart, I'll come in and I'll dwell with you. We'll have true fellowship. But the choice is yours. Author J. Vernon McGee said, and I quote, This is a this is the picture of Christ we have in Revelation. He stands at the door and knocks. He will not crash the door, regardless of what some extremists say on this matter of election. The Lord Jesus has moved heaven and hell to get to the door of your heart. But when he gets there, he will stop and knock. You will have to open the door to let him in, end quote. Guys, look, even though I believe the proper interpretation of this passage is an invitation for unbelievers to open the door of their hearts to Jesus so that they can be saved, I do think we could apply it to Christians also. What do I mean? Well, it could be used as an illustration of how many Christians' hearts have cooled to the Lord and uh, how they have forsaken Him in many ways. Another author put it this way. He said, and I quote, How often I have seen Christians whose lives are represented by the neglected cottage in Holman Hunt's famous painting. Where, uh, where the fire of passion once filled the windows with, light of vi- with the light of vibrant life, now only the dimness of passivity is evident. Once the pathway was packed firm and the grounds weeded and trimmed for the frequent welcomed visitor, but now the threshold is rarely crossed and the door that was always ajar in anticipation of the master's fellowship is now shut and locked from the inside against a friend who is now regarded as a stranger. Look, we're done. But, but let me say this, okay? One of the saddest things is for a person to receive Christ, fall in love with Him, receive Him. He's set on fire. All they can think about is Jesus. All they talk about is Jesus. They, they witness to their friends and their co-workers and family members. They're just, they just want people to know they're Jesus. But then something happens. Over the course of time, their heart begins to cool. Maybe some of the world starts slipping in, like with Solomon. He started off good in his walk with the Lord, but over the course of time... The world kind of seeped in, and he walked away from God for a long time. You know, God lamented this with Israel, how he had brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness, made a covenant with them. He married them, basically, and was leading them in the wilderness. But after a while, in the beginning, well, after a while, their hearts cooled toward him. And God laments this to the prophet Jeremiah. He said, I remember the days of our betrothal, when I brought Israel out of the out of Egypt and into the wilderness and proposed marriage to them, and they accepted. God says, I remember in those days, those days of our honeymoon, um, they, 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 all they did was talk about me. They wrote, Holiness to the Lord on their tent flaps and on the bridles of their horses. What have I done that you no longer love me like that? God lamenting. What have I done that your heart has become cold towards me? And so on. And I think that the Lord is trying to tell his church, this last day's church, because the devil is ramping up his attacks. Christians are, they're, they're weary. This is not a time to give up. It's not a time to turn around. And I believe Jesus is saying, I love you. My love for you has not changed. I love you as much now as I ever have loved you. you your love is cool towards me. But it's not too late. It's not too late to turn to me again, bite me back into your heart in the sense of fellowship, where we can, you know, have those wonderful times that we had when you were in my word all the time and you couldn't talk to me enough and and it was just that kind of relationship. Why is a person's relationship with Jesus? Why does it grow cold? And we're done. But let me just end with this. Maybe. Your relationship, I don't know. Why does a person's, a Christian's relationship with Jesus grow cold? Because their faith has grown cold. The solution, you need to turn away from the world and all of its practices. I counsel people, it's like, you know, well, my heart for the Lord is cold. Well, okay, are you in the Word? No. Are you going to church? No, not really, not faithfully. What are you doing in your free time? Oh, They're doing all kinds of stuff. They're, you know, watching ungodly TV shows and listening to ungodly music, playing video games and watching other movies and things. Um, They need to repent. Remember what Jesus said in Revelation 2 verse 5? Repent and do your first works. Come back to me. Get back to that honeymoon love stage that we entered into when you first got saved. Well, how do I do that, Lord? Well, you get away from the junk you've fallen into and get back to how it was when you first got saved I mean, what'd you do when you first got saved well i did my morning devotions every morning get back to it what else did you do well, i would play christian music in the car everywhere i went i was singing praises to the lord well, that's good he inhabits the praises of his people are you doing that still no i've gotten away from that listen to praise again praise god and you just you know get in the word get back into fellowship It's not rocket science. But a lot of Christians have drifted. They don't realize they've drifted. They think they're fine with the Lord. Like Laodicea. Even though Laodicea, they were not even saved. But you understand my point. They need a fresh infusion of God's spirit. A fresh infusion of faith. Because faith connects us to God. The stronger our faith, the stronger our connection and relationship with God. Very simple, guys. Romans 10:17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We have to get back in the Word. And I'm not talking about reading a verse every day, thinking that's going to keep the devil away. I'm talking about some serious Bible study, you know. Getting in the Word. Taking your Bible with you. Reading it when you have some free time here and there throughout the day. Asking the Spirit of God to fill you afresh. So, God willing, next week we will begin chapter 4. And I think chapter 4 is pivotal for us understanding what comes next. So, God willing, we will get into it next time. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you never give up on us. And even when our hearts cool... You're knocking, knocking, knocking. Let me in. I want to have fellowship with you. Don't forsake me. Don't turn your back on me. And Lord, thank you that you're so tenacious. You never give up on us. Give grace, Lord. We need revival in these last days. Father, the darkness is intense. The devil is on the move. Lord, please revive your church that we may go in the power of the Spirit and be used to bring a great awakening to our nation. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your love. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.